Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul was reading this morning for us. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. And the fact, if you look at verse 22, that every person born is someday going to die. So if you look at verse 22, we read, for as in Adam, all die. And of course, the whole chapter is, as I've mentioned previously, um, probably one of the top 10 Uh, most important chapters of the entire Bible because it contains the resurrection. So we find here that the whole chapter is about dying. I want to remind you that everything that he's teaching to the church at Corinth, they've never heard before. This is all new. And I use the example of of communion, how it was... um, what we did this morning, we, we were remembering and we were examining our own hearts. Lord, you know, what did I do wrong this week that, that I need to bring up? I want to have a clear conscience before I remember what you did for me. And so we do that on a monthly basis. Well, in the Corinthian church, it was a party. Um, they would overeat to the point of gluttony and then they would get drunk on top of it. They had no concept of what, what uh, communion was all about. And so he has to explain to them what the gospel is all about. It's about the resurrection. And that Jesus died for your sins. And the, what you should, the punishment that should be dealt out, should be dealt out upon you, but it was poured out. And we'll talk about it this morning, the wrath of the Lamb. God's wrath was poured out on his own son on Calvary's cross. It's a serious time, time of self-reflection, and that was the last thing the church in Corinth was doing. So now he explains to them that because of Adam's sin, everybody's going to die. But there is an exception. And what we're going to finish, we finished um, 1 Corinthians 16 on Wednesday. So... We'll be starting um, Second Corinthians. But here, Paul is going to uh, speak to them about one generation that is the exception. Everybody's going to die, except one generation. Um, if you look at verse 51, we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. No, this definitely would have been a mystery to the Corinthian church. They were hearing this for the first time. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I'll come back to that word changed in a minute. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So they're hearing something they've never heard before. Everybody's going to die except one generation. And um, let's get back to the word changed here because um, I like the Greek word for, uh, for it. It's metamorphosis. And um, it's probably the best way that we can explain what happens when the rapture is going to take place. And that is it's going to happen instantaneously. 
And the word change there is in the Greek metamorphosis. And I've told this, many of you have heard it, but for those watching live stream or maybe uh, you're visiting or whatever, I like to use the analogy of these, these little caterpillars. Uh, they can't do anything, little furry things, and all they can do is hang around on the ground and um, sometimes run over them with your car wheel and that kind of stuff. Can't move very fast, and all they really do is eat. And then after a period of time, uh, they go into a stage where they start to spin and people have different terms for it, the chrysalis or the cocoon, whatever. But it envelops them completely. And in a matter of, oh, several weeks, just think about this, not billions and billions and billions of years. Several weeks, it goes from this creature that crawls around on the ground and just in a matter of weeks completely transforms itself, or the Lord does. Let's use this one and call it the monarch, okay? And all of a sudden it comes out of this home, temporary home, a completely different creature, completely changed, a brand new body. And that's a good way to explain the rapture of the church. It's a change that happens very, very quickly. And uh, it says this, we read er earlier, that this corruptible must put on incorruption. We live in corruptible bodies, and we need new ones that will be given to us for all eternity. And what happens is it goes from this um, little worm-type creature to this unbelievable, beautiful creature that uh, has the capacity to fly. It's absolutely gorgeous to observe. Um, And uh, the thing that blows my mind about the monarchs, and I talked a little bit about this on Wednesday, is you can have monarchs from the East Coast to the West Coast in in Appleton, Wisconsin. And, And all of a sudden, one day, you don't see them anymore. And you go, where, where are they? Well, the ones on the East Coast have not been in communication with the ones on the West Coast, nor the monarchs in Appleton, Wisconsin. But somehow, they all end up on this mountain outside of, um, of um, Mexico, Mexico City. And you can go online and you'll see a whole mountain range covered with monarch butterflies, one on top of the other, in the millions. They all go to the same place. How in the world does that happen? Well, they, after billions of years of evolution, they figured, they figured a way how to communicate with each other telepathically. And it's gonna be cold, let's go to Mexico for the winter. <laughs> and then, then we'll go back north next uh, when, when it gets too hot down there. No, incredible beauty, incredible design. And then this built-in instinct to end up on the same mountain. You know, when it says in Romans chapter one that man is without excuse because of creation, you can't have common sense and watch a National Geographic special and see this presented, not from a pulpit, no, National Geographic 
and say, yeah, they just evolved. It just happened over, over chance. No. You're suppressing, the Bible says, you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You know that there is a creator. You can't, if you have any common sense at all, you have to come to that logical conclusion. There is a creator. But the Bible says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't want to be held accountable to a God. Therefore, I'll call myself an agnostic or an atheist. Agnostic, by the way, is another form from the Greek, ignoramus. So if you want to go around and call yourself an ignoramus, that's up to you. And when somebody tells me they're an atheist, I call them a liar. You can't call me a liar. I, I, I know what I am. I said, no, I know what you are. You're lying. <laughs> You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I better get back to our verses here. But I like, I like the analogy, the word change there, metamorphosis, because that's what's going to happen. Everybody's going to die except one generation. The Bible tells us that it'll be the generation, we'll get to Matthew 24 eventually, that sees the regathering of the nation of Israel back into the land. Uh, We'll see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. The rapture is a part of Bible prophecy. And there has to be one. And you'll have a better understanding of that before we're done with our study this morning. We are living in what we call right now the church age. Um, It began at Pentecost when Peter preached, 3,000 people were saved, Acts chapter two. And it'll come to an end with the rapture of the church, our subject this morning. Romans, if you're taking notes, this is Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. Paul writing to the Romans, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. There's a word again. Lest you would be wise in your own opinions that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So that means the church began at Pentecost. The fullness implies a certain set number. God knows exactly the number that is going to be raptured And when that last person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he'll take us home. And we're gonna see, you know, I figured, I wish it would have happened um, a long time ago. And, uh, but we're gonna see from an Old Testament picture why the Lord is being so patient and long-suffering. And so my point here is that We're living in what we call the age of grace, the church age, began at Pentecost. It'll end with the rapture of the church. And then verse 26 says, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. So we're switching gears. We're going from Judaism and then it says, again, if you're taking notes, uh, Gospel of John chapter one, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came to his own people, and the majority of them rejected them. And we find, after the church is gone, that he goes back to dealing again with Israel, 
that he is their Jewish Messiah. So again, Romans 11, 25 and 26, God has allowed this to happen until the fullness of the Gentiles, which is a reference to the rapture. When that happens, you see, God owes Israel seven years. And I can't get into it too much, but I want to touch on it a little bit. In Daniel chapter nine, God said that he would deal specifically with the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem, and he would deal with them for a period of 490 years. After 483 years, that would be on a Jewish calendar back then, 173,880 days to the day, we, we call Palm Sunday, Jesus allowed himself to be worshiped as a Jewish Messiah. That was um, 69 of the 70 weeks, therefore, has been fulfilled. But he promised them 70. And uh, that 70 is a seven, seven weeks there when you do the Hebrews. It's a uh, hepta, um, I might have that wrong. But anyway, it's a seven-year period of time. So immediately after the rapture, it says, so Israel will be saved as it is written. Well, how are they going to be saved? Well, the two witnesses. I believe them to be, without getting into an in-depth study, Moses and Elisha. And um, um, they will do signs and wonders, preach the gospel, along with 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Dan is not mentioned in that list. That's a different uh, story on its own. But he owes them seven years. So this seven-year period of time that um, begins, Jesus called it the greatest time of tribulation that the world will ever know or has ever known. And it's called, in Revelation, if you're taking notes, chapter 6, verse 17, the beginning of that period of time, is called the wrath of the Lamb. In other words, it's God's wrath on an unbelieving world who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it. And now, they have to, because they rejected um, the only way that a person can be saved, What's a good way to put it? He puts the pressure on, okay? And it intensifies, starting with seal judgments. The book of Revelation, the key verses, again, if you're taking notes, chapter one, verse 19. John, write to things that you've seen, chapter one. Write to things that are, church age, two and three. And then write to things that'll be after the church age, beginning with chapter four through the end of the book. And so you divide the book of Revelation that way. And one of the things that you'll notice is that it intensifies as it goes. We have the seal judgments. The trumpet judgments can be called the third judgments. One third of fresh water, one third of the sea, one third of the air is destroyed. But by the time we get to the bowl judgments, then it's very, very severe. And um, we cannot be there because it's called the, the wrath of the Lamb, so the church cannot be there, 
Why can't the church be there? Because God placed his wrath on Jesus for us. First Thessalonians 5, will be there in a little bit. Verse nine says, God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation. We can't. Um, it would nullify the work of the cross and the resurrection, which is what 1 Corinthians 15 really is all about. We call it the pre-trib rapture. And what we mean by that is it's prior to the, to the rapture, the church must be removed. And um, because God's wrath against our sin was satisfied when he poured out his wrath on his son on Calvary's cross. All right, this morning, we'll look at what the rapture is, and then we're gonna look at several Old Testament examples. So here, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians, and remember, please keep in mind, they have never heard anything like this. So if if they had communion messed up, now he's talking about people not dying, being changed, and have instantaneously having a brand new body um, that will have um, unbelievable capabilities um, that the Lord will, will have. I'm looking forward to that because this one's wearing out. <laughs> and so Paul is going to explain to the Corinthian church just what the rapture is. And so we've just read our text it's a mystery um, that not everybody will die or sleep, but we will be changed. It's going to be quick in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's pretty quick. At the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, um, when a believer dies, whenever I do a funeral, we always put in the front Bulls and cover Second Corinthians chapter five, the first five verses, and um, it talks about when this tent, this is a tent, is dissolved. That we have a home, not made with hands; it's eternal in the heavens. And then it goes on to say, "And for this body we groan." Can anybody say amen to that besides me? <laughs> oh Lord, give me a new body. In this we groan, not desiring to be unclothed, but further clothed, but with a new body. And then it goes on to explain in um, in Second um, uh, Corinthians five, it's verse eight. If you're taking notes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, as soon as a Christian dies he is immediately taken and he is with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, how, how comforting is that um, at a Christian funeral when you can talk to the loved ones who have all these mixed emotions going on of, of losing the one they love, but at the same time, they're home. They're home with the Lord. No more pain, no more suffering. And so we have this mixed emotion and a greater longing to be reunited um, with loved ones. I get asked the question, well, are 
Are we going to recognize other people when we get to heaven? And I say to them, do you think you're going to be more stupid than you are right now? (laughs) Now, what a dumb question. Of course you will. It's this great cloud of witnesses that... um, that are anxious um, for um, being reunited with with loved ones. I was looking through some old family pictures. I have a niece named Brianna, and she gets into these tangents. I'm off notes here right now. But once she gets, it's television. Well, for some reason, she wanted pictures of my grandma Crandall. And um, so my brother calls me, got any old family pictures of Grandma Crandall, Brianna's tunnel vision. And I said, yeah, I got lots of them. And, um, and this was right before, uh, I think, the prophecy conference. And I said, why don't you just, I'll give you books full of them. You can just pick, pick them up. And um, um, long story short, she uh, hurt herself that day working out and wasn't able to come down. So she still hasn't picked him up. And she might be tunnel vision on something else as far as I know right now. But my point is, um, I'm going to see my grandma Crandall again. And I'm going to see my Uncle Buck and my cousin Dennis. Stopped in, talked to them when I did a wedding up in Karat about a month ago. And... Um, most of them do not know the Lord. And so the ones that I got to talk to, I was pretty straightforward with. And I said, look, I may never see you again. So I've got to tell you what I know. And um, they, they know what I do. And they, Let me just encourage you. Time is short. It's, it's time to be more bold in people that we love. Even if it's just giving them a gospel track, God of wonders, um, any materials at all, because people are more open right now. They know something's coming down, but they just don't know exactly what it is. And we, of course, have a completely different perspective of it anyway, because we look at it from a biblical perspective. We know there has to be a one world government. We know there has to be a one world currency. We know there has to be a one world religion. The Bible teaches all these things and we're watching it unfold right now. And people are more open um, because they have more time on their hands. I'll quote this twice this morning in case I forget it a little bit later. 60% of the mom and pop businesses in New York City are out of business permanently. 60%. Judy and I drove by Butch's this morning. Last year, the, the restaurant of the year. Sorry, dining room is closed. I mean, that's making it personal, gang. And uh, you, you know family members and you know people that are going through the, the same experiences. So they have time to maybe be a little bit more open, might be a way to say it. Um, but... You have to admit that there are people who call themselves Christians that do not believe in the rapture of the church because it seems so far out. 
Yes, I said it again, far out. All right, a 60 guy for sure. And, um, but what I'd like to do to give this teaching some meat about the rapture of the church, and in particular, that we will not go through any part of the seven-year period of time. For every New Testament teaching, what do we say? Old Testament picture. I'll just give you two this morning, but I think you'll find them um, very interesting. But before we go there, let's go to the teaching part, what Paul taught them, and go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul was in Thessalonica for about a month, and he was teaching them eschatology. Not just the ABCs, but he was, he was talking about the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord. He was giving them the whole thing. And that, that was a lot to take in. Um, let's pick it up. As they're being taught these things, obviously they had questions about um, um, loved ones that have died that were believers and... Um, Paul actually had to write had to write Second Thessalonians to remind them of what he taught them while he was there for that month. So their concern, if you pick it up in verse thirteen, is addressing those believers that had died. What what happened to them? So he says, verse thirteen of chapter four. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Hope here is the issue. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, when he comes again at the rapture of the church, remember to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so he's explaining to them here when the Lord comes for the church, those who preceded them is going to come with him and we go to meet him in the air. Now, um, in the translating of this, um, if we understand 13 and 14, then what we're gonna read in 16 and 17 might seem to contradict itself, but it's in the translation. And um, J.B. Phillips' translation, I think, is the best here. And um, Pastor Chuck also goes along with this. So let's read 15. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. No, they've preceded us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ um, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up um, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18 is very important, for it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And let me just be honest, if if we're in any part of the seven-year period of time, um, I, f- I find absolutely no comfort 
whatsoever, knowing what I know is going on during this period of time. So the whole point here is, as he's explaining this teaching to the Thessalonians, is there's comfort. You can be comforted knowing that um, your loved ones are gonna return when the Lord comes. Uh, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those that are are asleep in Jesus. Now, uh, let's give you an example of, that's pretty much the teaching. Let's look at, have you turn to Genesis chapter five. And I'll give you several, just two, even though I could give you more, um, Old Testament pictures of what I call the, what we call the pre-trib rapture. So in Genesis chapter five, what you have is, if you look at verse one, it says, this is a book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And we go through, if you look at verse 32, we end with Noah. So basically, chapter five of Genesis is a genealogy that is followed down through Adam and Enos and Seth and Ham and so on and so forth. And it's gonna end with Noah. So let's go to verse 24 and read. um, No, let's go to verse 18 of chapter five. And this is part of the genealogy. It said, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and begot sons and daughters. So the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Now Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Okay, remember that. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years and he begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Years. Verse 24 is where I'm going and looking at. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What do you mean he took him? Well, it's just what it said. He walked with God and God just took him. He was raptured, he was translated, and he was no longer there. And um, it goes on to tell us, and he was not, God took him. And now we start talking about Methuselah, lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And uh, he begot Lamech, lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And then we read, so the days of Methuselah. We've heard the expression, that guy's as old as Methuselah. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Now here's where the picture comes in. Methuselah, I'm gonna put something on the screen so this is something you can Google and do your own homework on. And um, 
It's an article from a Christian publication. I basically first heard this from Chuck Missler and um, um, about Methuselah. He is the oldest man who ever lived, and I believe he's the oldest man who ever lived for a reason. Now I'm going to read what um, you can follow. I'm not going to read all of it, just two paragraphs. The oldest man in the Bible, outliving all the rest, is a man named Methuselah, who lived 969 years, Genesis 5.27. Very little said about Methuselah other than that he was the grandfather of Noah. Now, there are two possible meanings of Methuselah's name. Man of the spear and his death shall bring. I lean towards the latter, and I'll explain why in a second. The name Methuselah means his death shall bring. There's a tradition outside the Bible that Enoch, Methuselah's father, was given a revelation from God that the flood would not come until his son died. Now, if this is true, Methuselah's name would essentially mean his death shall bring the flood. Now, if you do the math on this, the biblical math backs this up as Methuselah died the same year the flood occurred. What a coincidence. Methuselah's father's Lamech when he was 187 years old, uh, Genesis 5.25, and Lamech's father, Noah, when he was 182 years old, verse 28, the flood occurred when Noah was 600 years old, Genesis 7.6. So you take 187 plus 182 plus 600, and you come up with 969 years, which is the age of Methuselah when he died. So it appears there may be an interesting story behind the oldest man in the Bible. I take it a step farther. I believe it's a perfect picture of the teaching of the rapture. Why? Where else do you find somebody walking with God and all of a sudden just disappearing? And then, after that, he has a son who name actually means his death shall bring. And, um, and Noah ministered 120 years with the gospel. Nobody listened to him. This is crazy. You're telling me, Noah, it's gonna rain? What's rain? <laughs> it had never rained before. It's like telling people that you're gonna be changed, the Christian church. You may not even believe in the rapture. Well, if you're born again, it doesn't matter. You're coming anyway, and I'll explain it to you on the way up, Okay. And there's a lot of people who don't. And, um, but here, I believe it's a perfect picture. Why? Because we have Enoch taken out before judgment. Enoch is taken out before the flood came. And I think it's a, a beautiful picture, um, taken out before judgment. Turn to chapter 7 of this and we have Noah and the ark are also types. Noah, I believe, is a type picture of the church. So as we look at this chapter, 716, 
the Lord told um, Noah to build the ark, and he did, and uh, to bring every um, seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean. In the Levitical law, there was clean and unclean animals. I remember I was at the Y one time and and uh, done playing racquetball or something and and uh, in the hot tub and there were people there. There was one guy. Um, they were asking biblical questions back and forth between themselves. And uh, the question that was being shot out was, when Noah took the animals into the ark, how many of each kind did they take? And this was the debate that was going on as I was getting in. And the answer was, well, two of each. And that's what most people think. How many people, how many animals of each kind? Well, two by two. Two of one in. And the guy who knew the answer said, wrong. And I said, um, you're right and you're wrong. And it wasn't two by two. You say they took seven each of the clean and two of the unclean. And he says, how'd you know that? And I, I didn't tell him who it was. I just, I just know. <laughs> All you have to do is read the Bible because it, it says so right here. Seven of each kind of the bird, male and female, and two of each kind that are unclean, male and female. All you have to do is read your Bible. Very, very clear. So um, when that happened in the 600th year, in verse 11 of of the flood, um, Noah entered the ark. But what I especially want to draw your attention to, can you imagine the scene? All of a sudden, it starts to rain. And it says the fountains of the deep were opened. It wasn't just rain that came down for 40 days and 40 nights, no. The earth split. There's a, a, like a baseball seam all around the earth that you can look at today. All the fountains of the earth erupted, and it covered even to the highest mountaintops for 150 days. They were, they, they were up there. But what I want to point out is after... Noah and his family, his only converts in 120 years of ministry. It says in verse 16, so they entered male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and notice what it says, and the Lord shut him in. Now I'm reading from the New King James Bible. If you have the King James Bible, this is one of the places that it has a better translation. It says, the Lord closed the door. Now that's gonna be important for later, so just hold on to it for right now. So how is Noah a type of the church? Well, they got in, Noah and his family um, got in, and, and in this case we would be looking at it as the Lord, as that's where I'm taking you next. They got in, they went up, Judgment took place, and after the judgment took place, they came back down to the earth. Is that exactly what the Bible teaches about the rapture? We go up, judgment takes place, and we come back down. And the uh, millennium kingdom appears. Now the ark is a picture of Jesus. 
How so? Well, let's go to chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth, and at the end of a 150 days, the waters deceased. And then it gives us the date. Then the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. My question is, why do we need that bit of information? Unless there's something deeper to it. Um, the seventh month became the first month, and which would have been the month of Nisan. So if we would have been reading this during Jesus' time, we're told that it would have come to rest on the 17th day of Nisan. What is the 17th day of Nisan and why tell us anyway? Well, it's because what happened on the 14th of Nisan. You see, the 14th of Nisan was Passover. That's when Jesus died on the cross. Question, did anything of significance happen three days later? Oh yeah, what would the date be? The 17th of Nisan. That's why I believe the Holy Spirit put this in here. It's finished, work's over, price is paid. So it's, he tells us the date here, he rested. And, he, he, and then he was on the earth for another 40 days and he, he ascended into heaven, another rapture. Uh, what I won't talk about this morning in detail is Elijah. He was taken up into heaven and uh, but, but we're going to look at Lot instead. I told you there's many we could go through. But um, I do not take this as a coincidence at all. Uh, mathematics or gametria, and, and it's that old saying, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets, and the more your mind gets blown with the treasures and the nuggets that you find in the word of God. And what does it do? Builds up your faith. You go, that, how could that ever be a coincidence? Answer, it's not. And um, matter of fact, it says in the countless ages to come, he's gonna be showing us the mysteries that are in this book. I can't wait for a Jesus Bible study from Jesus himself. He says, you guys don't know nothing yet. We'll be teaching this book forever and ever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my word. That's gonna be taught for a long, long, eternal time. So, in Genesis um, 19, let's go there, we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I am just going to explain um, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll get into um, 14 to 24. Um, basically, it's talking about Lot, and he um, moved into and actually became uh, one of the leaders in the city of Sodom. Uh, verse 8 said he had two daughters, and um, 
um, the Lord has sent two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, most people think the sin of Sodom was homosexuality. That was part of it. But the scripture tells us that the sin of Sodom was pride. Do you know that pride is the worst sin that there is? And I find it interesting that when you spell the word, what's the middle letter? I, how interesting. So the sin of Sodom was pride, but also like Corinth, very promiscuous, uh, given over to um, sodomy and homosexuality. And um, two angels show up that the Lord had sent to Sodom and, and um, he greets them and he offers them to come into his house for the night. And um, they said, no, we'll stay out in, a, out in the street. And he says, no, bad idea. You guys need to come in, stay with me. And uh, it says the men of Sodom um, and he invites them to, in, to come into his house and they wash their, their feet and so on and so forth. And um, the men of Sodom came and they wanted to have sexual relations with these two angels. And what blows my mind here is Lot offers his two virgin daughters to take their place. I can't imagine it, but that's what happened. And um, um, the angels, when they saw how determined the men and the young men of Sodom actually were, that the angels went out and he blinded them. So now they can't see. Don't you think it's a good time to go home? This is how perverse Sodom was. No, they groped to, to try to find the door to get in, that's what we continue to, to read. Verse 11, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. <laughs> Guys, time to go home, you know? And um, um, so Lot is told by the angels that he's got to get out of Dodge because God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he had uh, his daughters, uh, two were married, so he had son-in-laws too. So he went and he told his son-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, get up, come on, we gotta get going. God's gonna destroy Sodom. And it would be like saying, get your house in order. It's late, the Lord could come at any time. And you go, and what's gonna happen? Well, we're just gonna disappear. And that's how the way they looked at this. They go, are you nuts? What do you mean? God's gonna just destroy us and we have to leave. And it said they seemed that, that the, as they told them this, and while they lingered, they did not take it seriously. Uh, verse 14, it says they seemed to be joking. Um, but the angels had to take them literally by the hands Verse 16, while they lingered, the men took hold of his hands and his wife's hands and the hands of his two daughters and the Lord being merciful to him and they brought them out and set them outside the city. And it came to pass when they brought them outside, they said, escape for your life and don't look back. Don't look back at what? Of what I'm bringing you out of. 
When a person is born again, we're told in Romans chapter six, forgetting those things that are behind. You're a new creation. And you forget those things that are behind. You don't let any natural fleshly desires, you don't, it's not worth it. Don't look back. You just keep looking forward. Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, I press forward. And my friends, that's the attitude we have to have in the days that we're living today. We gotta be looking for the blessed hope. Yeah, we got all this other drama and um, the morality has sunk into such a level that our fifth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders are teaching and, and asking the questions whether or not they know if they're a girl or, or a boy. And when it gets to that point, um, that's pretty much the state that, um, well, this is the way Billy Graham said it. If God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology because we're no different as a nation. All right, now let's get down to the verses that I want to, to highlight, and that would be 14 through 24. And while he lingered, the man took hold of his hands. We read that. Verse 17, so it came to pass when they had brought them out, he said, escape for your life. Do not look back nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, please, no, my Lord. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life, but I can't escape to the mountains lest some evil might overcome me. See, now there's this city near here. It's just a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not just a little one? I can almost hear them. (laughs) And my soul shall live. And he said to him, see, I've favored you concerning this thing also, and I'll not overthrow this city from which you have spoken. So there were other cities besides Sodom and Gomorrah that were judged. Hurry, verse 22, escape there. Now read this carefully. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zorah. Here's a question. Why couldn't the angels do anything until Lot and his family and his wife were out of the city? And the answer to that question, I'm glad you asked it this morning, is go back to chapter 18 and look at verses 23 when the Lord tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is aware that that's where Lot is. And so Abraham asked the logical question. Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? This is an important point as we discuss uh, the rapture of the church going into the tribulation. If you're gonna bring the wrath during the tribulation, are you gonna let the righteous go through that too? Suppose there were 50, this is such a typical Jewish businessman here. He starts at 50. What if there's only 50? Would you destroy the righteous if there were 50 righteous? And he goes, no, I wouldn't do it for 50. I won't read all of this. I'll just go, go through it. Well, what about 45? Uh, this is bar- bartering in the old city in Jerusalem. This is how you do it. 
Matter of fact, they actually give a little class on the bus. Now, when you go shopping, they're going to start at this price. Then you say, no, 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 that's, that's, that's way too high. And they said, well, how about this? No, 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 can't do it. All right, I'm leaving. I'm going to check the shop next door. Wait, wait, we'll, we'll work something out here. Let's sit on and have a cup of coffee or whatever. And it's bartering, Jewish style. And so he said, well, what about 30? Would you destroy the city if there were 30 righteous? No. Under the pretense of what? That God will not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. There has to be a separation. They get all the way down to 10. And Abraham said, okay, Lord, don't get mad at me. I'll ask one more time. Let's just say there's only 10. You know what he's doing right now? He's counting on his fingers. There's Lot, there's his wife, his grandkids, he's got up to eight. There's gotta at least be two more righteous people inside him, but there wasn't. And he said, would you destroy it for the 10? And the Lord said, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy the city. Dwight, what's your point? That God will not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. There has to be a rapture. Because you're righteous. Why are you righteous? Because God gave you his righteousness and took your sin. The great switch. So with that, I'd like you to turn. These, this is the Old Testament picture and what should be obvious here and what should also be mentioned is it says in verse 26 of 19, but Lot's wife looked back behind her and she became a pillar of salt. Her heart was somehow attached emotionally to to Sodom. And when the judgment came, she did one of these and that was the last thing. Why is that important? Because when Jesus talks about the rapture, You know what he says? Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verses 36. The scriptures before it, I mentioned earlier, 32 to 36 is a parable of the fig tree. Talking about Israel as 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 a fig tree, Pastor Chuck actually made a film about this, the parable of the fig tree. You can still get it today. And it's all about the regathering of the people back into the land when they became a nation again in 1948. And he says, the generation that sees the rebirth of the nation of Israel will see the fulfillment. Uh, so when you see all these things, you'll know that as even at the very door. So what is the title of uh, the message this morning? Is, the title is, At the Door, slash Rapture. So here the Lord says, when you see Israel regathered, know that it is near, even at the very door. Assuredly, I say unto you, this generation, what generation? This generation, right now, will by no means pass away till all things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
Now, good Bible teachers have different translations on this, but I stand firmly that it can only be a reference to the rapture of the church because Daniel and Nehemiah tell us to the very day that Jesus would come the first time, April 6, 32 AD. So Robert Anderson's book is all about that if you want to do extra credit and, and homework and so on and so forth. So I can tell you to the day that Jesus came the first time. It's history. But I can also tell you when he's going to come back the second time. And that is uh, Daniel chapter 12, the last couple of verses. It'll be 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. And if that's new terminology for you, you're going to have to do, be a Brian and do your own homework. But... Um, who are you going to have teaching during this time? Oh, Moses and Elijah. They'll be laying it all out, 144,000. And um, so this, in my opinion, can only be a reference to the rapture. No one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. And then he goes back and he says, it's going to be like the days of Noah, verse 37. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And I thought this was interesting in light of the joyful, beautiful uh, wedding that uh, we had in Green Bay yesterday. And um, nothing wrong with it, but believe me, during the wedding, people weren't thinking about the rapture. They were, they were enjoying the beautiful bride and um, Brandon, I hope he's not listening. He got, he got a little teary-eyed, didn't he? Yeah, he got a little <laughs> And uh, I thought it was touching, actually. And it was, uh, it was a special event. What's your point? My point is we're living in times where these things are taking place. People are still getting married. And... Um, and yet at the same time, um, as we begin to wind this up, we're going to talk about what's really going on in the world today. And did not know until the flood came and took them all out, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Why does this have to be the rapture? Perfect example. Two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. I always like to say, one will be... Two will be working at Walmart. One will be taken, one will be left. One's born again, one's not. Watch therefore. Watch for what? Well, let's go down to 44. For you do not know the hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that the master of the house uh, would have watched, if he, a thief was, would come, he would be had watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect him. Go with me to Matthew chapter 25, which is the next one over. And we're told here, we have the parable of the 10 virgins. And the term virgin here implies, I would look at it as being Christians. So five wise Christians and five foolish Christians. 
Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamp and went out to meet the bridegroom. Well, what is the rapture of the church? We went through this a couple weeks ago when Abraham sent his unnamed servant to get a bride for his Rebecca for Isaac. It's a picture. Five were wise and five were foolish. Uh, verse three, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Oil, oil is usually symbolic for the spirit. In the Old Testament, when they would anoint somebody for ministry, what would they anoint them with? Oil. But the wise took oil with their vessels and their lamps, but while the bridegroom was delayed. Here we have a picture of Methuselah, 969 years old, the oldest. Why is he the oldest? Because to me it paints a picture of God's long-suffering, his patience, it's long, and it's long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. And at midnight a cry was heard, behold the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. As I look at world events today and everything that's happened, everything is in place for for the tribulation to begin. And all that has to happen is we're taken out and everything is revved up and ready to go to enter into this period of time. And they arose and they trimmed their lamps and the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered said, no less there should not be enough for us. But you go buy and those who sell and get for yourself. But while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in to the wedding, and what does it say? And the door was shut. Oh, that's interesting. Those who were ready in the ark went in, and the Lord closed the door. And now we have a picture, I believe, of the rapture. Oh, they're Christian in name, but they don't know the Lord personally, and he's gonna say so. But I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit would choose to use the words and the Lord closed the door, making my mind go back to Genesis where he closed the door on the ark. Don't you think they were knocking, trying to get in? Nope, then the Lord closed the door. Afterwards, the other virgins came also and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, assuredly I say, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day or the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm doing a little bit of these are very short verses. So I'm going back to a little New Testament teaching about the rapture. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found uh, and was not found because God had translated him or raptured him. For before his translation, he had his testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently will seek him. Turn with me to First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, verse 
18 through 22, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and he preached to the spirits in, in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. And there is the terminology, long-suffering, in the days of Noah. Picture Methuselah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This is also an antitype which now uh, uh, saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. That's what we did when we took communion this morning. Lord, I want to have a clean conscience before I remember what you did for me. So we take a little time, uh, self-reflection, and we repent if we need to repent of something we did wrong so we can have this clear conscience before the Lord. Yeah, but I sin every day. Well, join the cloud. We all sin every day. What's the good news? First John 1, that he is, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So don't we get up and brush our teeth every morning? Wash our hands? We do it on a daily basis. And our sins can be done and forgiven on a daily basis. So it's, not, it's a picture and a type, not of baptism and removal of flesh, the filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Second Peter chapter two, just a couple verses. Second Peter two, verses four through nine. Says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, um, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them what? An example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Um, For the righteous man dwelling among them, it tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing these lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Well, how is he gonna deliver us? Through the rapture. Somebody asked me this week, said, how are you doing, Dwight? And I said, well, should I tell him the truth or not? And um, I said, well, to be honest with you, I don't wanna use the word depressed. 
I don't want to use the word anxiety. And because I was studying this this week, I said, the way I feel, I feel vexed. I feel vexed. That's, that's the best, to be honest with you, how do I feel? I feel vexed. Because I see all this stuff and I hear all the stuff that's going on in the world. And I said, I qualified it by saying, even though I feel this way, this is what we're talking about on Sunday morning. Even though I know all this stuff and I know more than what I want to know. And there's a lot that I, that I know that I, I will not talk about from the pulpit. I, ha- I want at least two resources to confirm where I can prove it from here. But there's a whole lot more that I know. Uh, it says with much knowledge, and I'm not trying to build myself up here, but um, I know what the scripture says about this period of time, and maybe I more, know more than what I want to. And it vexes me, to be honest with you. But having said that, we have this blessed hope called the rapture that's gonna um, uh, change all that but then there's those that are left behind. Okay, we're beginning to close up. The guys in the sound room are nervous because I I use the word beginning. (laughs) Turn with me to just uh, a couple verses in Matthew 24, and I'll make these closing statements. Matthew 24, and let's have a little reality chat here. Matthew 24 verses three through eight is an answer that he gives to the disciples because they wanted to know when the Lord was coming and what would be the sign, singular, of the Lord's coming. Well, the sign is the parable of the fig tree. Singular, one event, the rebirth of the nation of Israel. But then he goes on and gives them signs in verses three, um, three through eight. Let's just read them. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, Lord, when will these things be and what will be the, the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus will answer that. Matthew 24 is not in a chronological order because he would have said the parable of victory if that was the case. But instead he gives them signs, plural, to look for. Take heed no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying I am Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Let's just stop there. Wars and rumors of wars. And I really have to be careful here because there's so much going on in this area. Iran right now is threatening Israel. Ezekiel 38 could break out at any time. We're bombing just south of um, Damascus right now, which is Isaiah 17, possibly could be fulfilled at any moment. China is um, um, threatening Taiwan right now. What's that? That's called a rumor of war. Um, uh, Ukraine, I'm following right now, and I'm waiting for more information on it, is eight months ago, I don't know if you remember, but um, in Ukraine, the two farthest east are two breakaway um, states in the country of Ukraine that still speak Russian, and the Russians want them back, and they don't want to go back to to Russia. 
And so what Russia did about eight months ago, I don't know if you remember, they took 120,000 troops, um, heavy equipment, arms, tanks, the whole nine yards, there for two weeks, south part of Kuwait and, and um, the, the Russian border. And then they went home, the troops. But they left all the artillery there. Now what I'm hearing right now is that um, it's heating up with this one particular state, I can't pronounce its name, that is moving their troops towards the border towards Russia. And the other report that I heard as they're making that movement, the troops that left eight months ago are coming back to their equipment that was left there eight months ago. They're coming back by the train loads. What's that called? It's called a rumor of a war. Is there a war taking place? No, but it sure is a rumor. Um, Ukraine against Russia. Um, I hope everybody realizes right now we are already at war with China as we speak. And then we have just leaving the wars and rumors of wars, it goes on to say nation will rise against nation and there will be famines. Well, that's happening all over the the West right now and in Africa. Pestilences, huh. Any pestilences in the world today? Only the most biggest one that has ever been. The biggest pestilence that has ever been is in the world today. And we could talk a lot about that, but for sake of time, you're aware that the COVID-19 and, and the vax is a worldwide pestilence. And that's the word that's used here, and earthquakes in various places. I'll just throw this out to you for those that are interested in studying earthquakes. And just jot down La Palma in the Canary Islands at 700 miles off the northwest coast of Africa and um, the intensity of the volcanic activity and the earthquakes that are happening there. 4,000 plus in the last month. And that's another subject that's going on. China just put in their paper this last week to all the people of China to go out and buy as much food for this winter. Do your homework. That's That's what they're telling their own people to do. Well, why would they do something like that? That's another rumor. Um, We could talk about the border um, and troops possibly being in in China and in Canada. Um, As far as sign of the times and earthquakes in diverse places. And then the Lord says this, interesting. All these are the beginning of sorrows. There's another scripture that says men's hearts will fail them for fear when they see the things that are coming upon the earth. My friends, it's only a matter of time. They're, let, they're letting these vaccines going out in different doses, dosages. If they would have did the big dose all at one time, people would have caught on very quick. But every week that goes by, more and more people realize that there's a whole lot more to this jab than, than what's being told. And when it talks about a cold winter and China telling everybody in China, stock up, prep up. And uh, that's what China is talking about. Why would men's hearts fail them for fear? 
Well, the very fact that they might realize that they might be in big trouble because they took it. And they might be finding out that it's only a matter of time. And so with that, I, I will close. I just wanted to touch on, I didn't even touch on a financial crisis. I didn't even touch the devaluation of the dollar and interest rates going through the top. I did mention earlier the mom and pop businesses in New York never be back again. And I almost did forget about Butch's just down the street. And this is, this is local. We will close this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 on a much brighter note. I'll read these 11 verses and let it speak for themselves. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Do you know how much of the church today is completely biblically illiterate when it comes to the study of eschatology or Bible prophecy or current events? The most of the information that they know, they get from the ABC Evening News. They get it from CNN. And everything's fine, nothing's normal. Mom, what are you guys all worked up about? But concerning us, the times and the season, you should have no need that I write this to you. Might I remind you he was only at this church for one month? For you yourself know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren are not in darkness so that that day should overtake you as a thief. All the things that we see happening right now, we should see them as signs that it is very, very late right now. You are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch. And might I add, don't look back and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet and the hope of salvation. Why? For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake or sleep, we should live together with him, Therefore, scare one another to death with these words. I mean, if you don't know the Lord and you don't have the blessed hope and you don't see everything that's going on as something that the Bible has talked about since it was written. We have pictures of it in the Old Testament that he will not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. There has to be a rapture. And so he says, you should know this. And because you know this, what should you do? You're you're to comfort one another. So if you have a friend who's a Christian who's uh, vexed, over-vexed, pull him aside and say, yeah, that's gonna happen. But let it be an incentive to share with your loved ones and find hope in the blessed hope that God has not appointed you to wrath. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you are so doing, amen. Let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we're grateful 
as um, uh, we teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse that we have to deal with every issue and every subject. As we finish the book of 1 Corinthians, all the chapter of 1 Corinthians is about the blessed hope of the resurrection. That because you were resurrected, we will also be resurrected. And thank you that when we have to deal with subjects like the rapture, that it's just part of the text that we're going through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So this morning, Lord, we pray for boldness uh, to tell the whole story. And um, we thank you and are grateful that you allow us to see it and um, we're aware of the mess that our world is in and the things that can transpire. Um, But we're grateful that you bring in this one generation that'll never see death, but it'll be translated. And once that happens, we'll put on that new body and a home that we'll have forever. So help us to number our days. As your word tells us that as we close this morning, when these things begin to happen, look up, rejoice, your redemption draws near. In Jesus' name, amen.